Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. And as you're making your way back in, you know, Tony mentioned that we have a group. Our Fusion Student Ministry is up in Baraboo, Wisconsin this morning. We have a team of 23 students and leaders up there. And uh, Dan sent me a few pictures last night, so I thought I'd share a couple of them with you. They are having a great time of worship, Bible study, and fun. They're hiking, they're swinging from high ropes up in the trees, and, and uh, their theme this year is indescribable, and it's all focused on the love of God. And so I'm sure we're going to hear some great reports of what God is doing there. So just remember to keep them in prayer, as Tony said, as they'll be returning uh, later this afternoon. I'll be glad to have many of them back, my wife included. So if you think back about 10 days ago, Thursday, September 22nd, the news and weather forecast they were tracking an area of interest. Uh, it was just a little weather disturbance off the coast of Venezuela, some 1,400 miles southeast of Key West, Florida. And they had a name for it. They called it Invest 98L. And that was an area of investigation. And it had winds less than 30 miles per hour, but meteorologists were saying, this is going to become a major storm and it is going to impact the United States. And they had their forecast models for where it would go. Well, the next day it became known as Tropical Depression Number 9. And it was still 1,045 miles south of Key West with winds of only 32 miles per hour. Yet the governor of Florida issued Executive Order 22218 declaring a state of emergency for the West Coast and panhandle of Florida. Now, if you lived in one of those areas, imagine how hard it would be to take action when that storm was so little and so far away. You open your door in the morning. It's 75 degrees, bright sunny skies, a light breeze blowing, and you have big plans for the week ahead, the last thing you wanted to do is start preparing to evacuate, it would be really difficult to take any kind of preemptive action. But then the very next day, last Saturday, the 24th, just as forecast, 98L became Tropical Storm Ian. With winds still only about 40 miles an hour, but by Monday it was a Category 1 hurricane. And by Tuesday it was a Category 4 hurricane. It came ashore almost exactly where they said on Wednesday, just two miles an hour beneath the threshold for a Category 5 hurricane. With winds of 155 miles per hour. All of that was almost exactly as they said a week before. Well, pictures kind of show the widespread devastation that Ian brought to Florida. There were buildings ripped apart and flooded. And as of early this morning, the death toll is now up to 67 people and, and climbing fairly rapidly as they get into some of these areas. Now, I just, I look at that and I have to wonder, how many people do you suppose wish they would have heeded the warning? 
and been more prepared. Now, of course, those right where the eyewall came ashore, there was little they could do other than get their stuff, their most important stuff out and evacuate themselves. But many, many were content to just try and ride out the storm and, and many drown as a result. FEMA, the emergency, Federal Emergency Management Agency, publishes a comprehensive preparedness guide to help families and communities prepare for just such a thing. And look at this. They even have one for houses of worship, a guide for developing high-quality emergency operation plans for houses of worship. There's great, there are great resources available to help people prepare for just such an event. And as good as that is, Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 3. He said, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. Yet you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And the signs Jesus was talking about are the prophetic signs of the end times. And they've been laid out by God in advance, far in advance, for our warning and preparation and instruction. And we've been given a preparedness guide of our own. And it's far more important than any put out by FEMA. And it's this guide. We got the Word of God. Maybe you've heard the acronym B-I-B-L-E. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Right? The Bible. This is one of my favorite study Bibles, the Life Application Study Bible. Love it. Use it all the time. But it's hard to imagine the events of the end times when we're living in pretty much comfort and prosperity. It's just kind of hard to think about that. It's like that sunny 75 degree morning in Florida, isn't it? And it'd be easy to feel that things are just going to continue on as they have been. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. It says, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing's going to change. Yet for those who are spiritually astute, you can see the storm clouds gathering on the horizon, can't you? You can see the clouds getting darker. Something is going to happen. Well, this morning, our text deals with some of these signs, signs that are happening all around us. And so the message title is Absolute Certainty of Coming Attractions. And we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, 18 and 19. And the outline has these two parts, the times in verse 18 and the signs in verse 19. Now, it's been a few years since we really dove into the end times. I think the last time was in our foundation series in 2019. Prior to that, we had the big picture and overview of the Bible, and we delved into the, old into the end times. But uh, I thought it would be good for us to revisit some of that this morning as we look at how this fits into the text in 1 John. And so let's just start by reading through this short passage. It reads, beginning in verse 18, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. 
For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. This is God's word. His prophetic word. So let's look first at the times in verse 18. John begins once again with the phrase, dear children. Or in some translations, little children. He uses that over and over again. Now to John, who's about 100 years old at this point, everybody is a kid, right? A 70-year-old person would be a little child. I kind of like being thought of as young. But this is kind of a term of endearment. It shows his shepherding heart. These are his spiritual children that he cares for. And he's saying, dear little children. But if you were here listening a couple weeks ago, you know that there's two different terms that are used for dear children in this, in this letter. One was technion, which refers to the children in the sense of all who are saved and are children of God. But then there was this other interesting word, paedion, which refers, it focuses on the immaturity or lack of training of little children. And it's actually the second word that he uses here. Little children in the sense of still not really mature in this particular area. So they had an understanding of the gospel. They'd been saved. But when it came to the things that lie ahead, the end times, the prophecy and scripture, they still had a lack of understanding. And so he addresses them as little children. And he says... This is the last hour. Well, what he's referring to is a prophetic timeline of Scripture. It's a place, a pointer within this prophetic timeline. And as hard as it might be for us to get our minds around it, time had a beginning. It had to have. Or it couldn't be the last hour. Somewhere along the line, Time had to begin. And so I want to just zoom all the way out. And I want to look at this prophetic timeline. On one end you have eternity past. Now I had no idea how to draw eternity. So I made a cloud. <laughs> I don't know. If you got a art people. If you got a better way. You know but this seemed kind of nebulous to me. This eternity past. A cloud. And eternity past. We sometimes refer to it in scripture as. Before time began. There was something before time began. There was eternity past. And there was someone before time began. And that was God in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because God himself is eternal. He's not subject in any way to the constraints of time like you and I. So we have eternity past. But then we have the beginning. As seen in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. It's not just the beginning of the created things, but it's the beginning of time itself. The whole time, space, matter continuum is summed up right in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. He did it all right there, including time. Time began, and it's been moving forward ever since. Now, I know our finite minds have a really hard time grasping the idea of life outside of time. But there is such a thing, and it's called eternity. 
and it had a beginning. Time had a beginning, and it's actually quite provable. And this is something I reflect on often. This is like an anchor. It's a, it's a, it's, it's just a, a anchor of certainty for me personally, because I look out and I go. I don't care what you think in all your theories, time had a beginning, just like God said, and it had to have. Now, follow me on this. If it didn't have a beginning, then we could never get to the point we are at today. Because no matter how many years may have elapsed, it could have always started further back in eternity, further back in eternity, and we wouldn't have ever gotten here. Maybe it would help to think of it like a counter. Oh, I passed it up. Look at that. You have no idea how much time I spent making that counter. I'm going to let it run. <laughs> PowerPoint animation, making a counter. When I started, it was on zero. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> it took me a long time. So I'm going to enjoy it for a little while. Think of it like a counter counting up. Unless that counter started somewhere, you could never get to the number that you see there. Because it could have always gone further back, further back, further back, and it couldn't have ever gotten here. That counter had to start somewhere. And in the same way, time had to start somewhere. Because there's a scientific principle that says you cannot progress through an infinite series. It's the law of infinite regression. If you're going to move forward in an infinite series, you have to have a starting point. We know that. There had to be a day one. Time had to begin. And that's scientifically proven. And so this we know. There was a starting point. And as much as time had a beginning, I'm going to have to put an end to my little timer there. It'll also have an end. It'll have an end. About 20 times the Bible speaks of the end or the end of the age. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Well, what happens after the end? Well, that's when we go back into this realm of eternity. And I'll draw it out again. There it is. Eternity future, we think of it as. Well, you want to hear something cool? Listen to this uh, verse, Psalm 90, verse 2. It says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In other words, from eternity past to eternity future, you are God. Now, I'm going to draw it in here like this. This is God, completely outside of time. Eternity didn't stop. When time began, it was still there. God was still inhabiting eternity. But he is from everlasting to everlasting. He alone knows the beginning from the end. He can see the whole span of time from any place, from, at any moment. He can see it all. He knows, he sees the day you die. He saw the day you began. Because God's outside of time. Now, if that's baffling to you, you're not alone. Living in the 5th century A.D., the theologian and philosopher St. Augustine said this, What is time? If no one asks me, I know. But if, anyone, if any person should require me to tell him, I cannot. 
I feel like that. I know what time is. You don't ask me to explain it, and I'm okay. That was uh, in the 5th century. Can you describe time? It's really a hard thing to get our mind around. Well, of all things, Time Magazine in 1999, December 27th, just almost on the eve of the new millennium, they read an article called The Riddle of Time. And the article said, while scientists have harnessed the power of the atom, cracked the genetic code, and probed the very edges of the universe, they still don't understand time much better than St. Augustine did. It's so true. Now, if this is something that interests you, I went back to a little book uh, this week that I enjoyed. It's called Time and Eternity. It's by a German scientist and, and believer named Werner Gitt. And it, it deals with God's relationship to time, both scientifically and, and theologically, time and eternity. It's not easy reading, but it's understandable, and it kind of gets into it more. But people want to know, when will the end come? And I would say there's more than one end. There's the end, but then there's our end, too. Let's not overlook that. There was a young lady who decided she wanted to take skydiving lessons, and so she goes out to the drop zone, and she's getting her instruction, her training on all the equipment, and she asks the instructor, well, what happens if our chute doesn't open? And he says, oh, no worries. We got a backup chute. In fact, you just release the main, and you deploy the backup chute. And she thought, okay. And they go on through their training, and then she says, okay, well, what if our main chute doesn't open and our backup chute doesn't open? How long do we have before we hit the ground? And the instructor said, you have the rest of your life. <laughs> Her end would come rather suddenly, right? So there's the end and there's our end. People kind of want to know, when will the end come? Well, let's look at some more uh, markers in our, in our timeline that the Bible gives us. We've already seen the beginning and we've seen the end. But let's put the birth of Jesus, I'm just, it, it's not to scale, okay, just a disclaimer. We'll put the birth of Jesus right here. And then let's also look at the return of Jesus. And I'm going to put it right here. No man knows the day or the hour, but the time in between in Scripture, between his first and second coming, is called the last days. It's a period of unknown length, and we're in it right now. Let me show you how we know we're in the last days. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. This is speaking of the church age. When God poured out his spirit at Pentecost. And began to indwell believers with the spirit of God. So we're in the last days. We're in the time between the first and second coming. But John takes it further. He emphasizes the urgency. And he says it's the last hour. In verse 18. Like the clock has gone around and around. We're on the last hour. He's saying the return of Christ could happen at any time. Now if he referred to it 
as the last hour when he penned this 2,000 years ago, what do you think he'd call it right now? Like the last minutes? Maybe the last minute? We're in the seconds? I don't know. But he wanted to underscore the urgency of the end. So a person might wonder, well, if it was the last hour back in John's day, why hadn't the Lord come back yet? Everything just continues like it always has. Scoffers, right? And we might ask that question. It's a fair question. I like this thought that John Henry Newman had. He was an English theologian, so he had, a, am sure, a rich accent. That I don't do English accents, just North Carolina. Um, but he said this. He said, up to Christ's coming in the flesh, the course of things ran straight toward that end, nearing it by every step. But now, under the gospel, that course has, if I may so speak, altered its direction as regards to his, in regards to his second coming and runs not towards the end, but along it and on the brink of it. And, is it, and it is at all times near that great event, which, which did not run towards it, which did it not run towards it, it would run at once into it. So what he's saying is we're going along, getting closer and closer to the end, but now with the coming of Christ, we're walking along the rim. We're on the edge, on the brink at any given time. Now, that's kind of helpful, I think, from our perspective. It doesn't fool God. God knows exactly when we're going to hit the end. But to us, we've been on the edge ever since the first century church. They believe God would come back within their generation. And I think there's a reason why God doesn't tell us when. He wants us to be prepared. I think that there is value in the imminent return of Christ. So it could happen at any time. So let's go back to verse 18 in our text. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, and, you, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Okay, so now we're introduced to something new, and that is the Antichrist. And John refers to him four times, three times in this epistle and once in 2 John. John's the only writer in the Bible to use this term, Antichrist. And you might think, well, that's not real credible. Nobody else talked about it. No, a lot of people talked about it. They just used different terms, different names or titles throughout the Bible. Let's look at some of them. The other names for the Antichrist, he's the little horn in Daniel 7.8. He's called a stern-faced king and a master of intrigue in Daniel 8.23. He's the ruler or prince who will come in Daniel 9. He's the king who does whatever he pleases in Daniel 11. Jesus referred to him as someone who comes in his own name in John 5.43. He's the man of lawlessness or the son of perdition, if you have a King James or New King James, in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. He's a rider on a white horse in Revelation 6.2. He's the first beast in Revelation 13. He's the beast that's thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur in Revelation 9.20. We see him throughout the Bible. The son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, the beast are some of the titles in addition to the Antichrist. And our text says the Antichrist is coming. So who is he? What is he? Well, in the title Antichrist, the word anti can mean opposite of, 
but it can also mean instead of. Don't think of him as being opposite of Christ in every way imaginable. He's not. In fact, he imitates Christ so much so that he deceives many. In fact, scripture says he deceives the whole world into worshiping him. So it's not like anti is in opposite Christ. It's like anti is in pseudo-Christ. Think of it that way. He's a pseudo-Christ. Now, someone once said this, that the Antichrist, quote, will have the oratorical skill of a John Kennedy, the inspirational power of a Winston Churchill, the determination of a Joseph Stalin, the vision of a Karl Marx, the respectability of a Mahatma Gandhi, the military prowess of a Douglas MacArthur, the charm of a Will Rogers, and the genius of a King Solomon. I think that's pretty interesting thought. He's going to be so convincing that he will even convince Israel to enter into a seven-year covenant with him. They're thinking, this is it. This is the Christ. But in the middle of that seven years, he breaks that covenant and he shows his two true colors. And then what will follow is the abomination that causes desolations, the sacrificing of a pig on the altar, or whatever that looks like in its full fulfillment. And it'll usher in the second half of the tribulation known as the Great Tribulation. So basically, Antichrist is this world dictator that it seems like he's ushering us into the golden age. But then he turns, he changes, he shows his, full col his true colors. And God will pour out his judgment on him immediately before the return of Christ. Now it sure seems like the stage is set for just such a person, doesn't it? We see the move toward global governance. Not only that, we see this crazy, you know, just celebrity culture. We're the, the world is looking for somebody to elevate and to worship. The stage is set. It's ripe for just such a person to come onto the scene and receive the support and the adoration and even the worship of the whole world. Now, people have speculated for millennia about who this guy is. Martin Luther was convinced it was the Pope in his time. He was wrong. Luther wrong, that kind of, you know, comforts me a little bit. We all can be wrong. In the 1940s, many believed it was Adolf Hitler. And how could you not with the extermination? He put out this big plan and then he exterminated 6 million Jews and brought war, war to the world. More recently, popular names have included Vladimir Putin, Prince William, Pope Francis, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. I guess it depends what party you associate with as to who you see the Antichrist being. People have pointed frequently to all of these men. But here's the thing. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus will not return until the Antichrist is revealed. So let me read you 2 Thessalonians 2. I'll read verses 1 and then 3 and 4. It says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, 
Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. But did you catch that? He, Christ won't return until this man is revealed. And even if it happens in the next few years, I don't believe any Christians on the earth at this time will be here to see it. Why not? Well, let me keep reading. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 8 says, And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the splendor of his coming. So there's a set time, according to God, as to when this man will be revealed, a proper time. And until then, there's one holding him back. Now that one can be none other than God with the power to do that or God working through someone or some things. Paul said here to the Thessalonians, you know what is holding him back. But doggone it, he didn't tell us. <laughs> he told, they knew. He had taught them this. But we don't have that recorded. God apparently didn't feel it important for us to know what it is. We have to kind of speculate Again, I think it would have to be God himself, but more specifically, it's probably the Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit on the earth today? He's indwelling the hearts of believers, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know? How did that go forward on its own? Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? We're... The dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to remove the Holy Spirit from the earth, you have to remove the church from the earth. That kind of points to the rapture, the snatching away of the church. And so this is why we believe the rapture of the church will occur before the tribulation. Because you first have to have a church and the Holy Spirit out of there to have the, the Antichrist revealed. And the Antichrist has to be revealed before the tribulation and the return of Christ. So let's kind of walk through this a little bit. It's what's known as a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And, and we hold that, we teach from that perspective as a church because we believe it is the best fit with what we see in Scripture. So let's see if we can squeeze a few more items in my timeline. Got to clear some stuff out of here. So first of all, we have the rapture. And then right after that, the revealing of the Antichrist. And then right after that, the tribulation followed closely by the return of Christ. And so that's kind of the sequence that I see in Scripture. And many scholars see in Scripture. I'm not a scholar, but scholars see in Scripture. And uh, we should also note in here, well, what about the millennium? Well, that would go like right here, immediately after the return of Christ. I believe Christ will return just before and usher in the millennial kingdom. There'll be the thousand-year reign, and then it all comes down, and the final end 
which sends us into this realm of eternity will come at the end of the millennium. So there's the sequence, there's a sequence of events there. And again, we, we teach a pre-tribulation view at Riverside because we believe it is the best fit with the timeline of Scripture. We, we can't go into detail, but I thought I'd put up a couple reasons. You can, you can look at them later if you want. First of all, the Bible says repeatedly that the church will be delivered from the time of wrath, a.k.a. the tribulation. We won't have to go through that. There's many more verses than this that speak of that. Another reason, there's no mention of the church in Revelation chapter 4 through 21, which is all about the tribulation. Whereas prior to that, you hear about the church in Revelation. But when we get to chapter 4 through 21 in the tribulation, no mention of the church. This view also fits the distinction we see between Israel and the church in Scripture. And it explains the imminence of the rapture, the return of Christ for his church. Not his return to the earth with the church, but his return for the church. If all of these events, like the tribulation, the abomination that causes desolation, happened before the rapture, well, it wouldn't be a surprise to anybody, would it? I mean, things in Scripture, like the parable of the, the bridegroom coming and surprising some of them, that wouldn't make any sense. We'd all go, yeah, we got about a year and a half and he'll be here. We'd know. But scripture portrays his return as imminent and unknown. And so that too supports the idea of the rapture of the church being before the tribulation. And then as we just mentioned, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is probably the one that holds back the Antichrist. So... Now, faithful believers can hold different positions on this. Some hold to a mid-trib, Christ will come back, or the rapture, rather, will be in the middle of the tribulation, or post-trib, at the end of the tribulation. It's not something we should divide over, but we teach from a pre-trib perspective because we believe it's the best fit of Scripture. And by the way, the PowerPoint's available online. Go to the message tab. Under the message for today, you'll see downloads and you'll see a PDF there that is the PowerPoint. You'll also find the Encore curriculums there along with an audio or video of the message. So if you miss something in the notes and you want to go back and look at it, you can find it there. So John writes in verse 18, As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Okay, we're just getting our head around this one guy. What's this all about? What are the many antichrists? They're not the antichrist, but they're like him in that they oppose or deny Christ. And just skip forward a little bit to 1 John chapter 4 and take a look at verses 2 and 3. It says this. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So the spirit of Antichrist, not the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. And it's seen in those who deny Christ and so this denial, this opposition continues to build and build leading up to the Antichrist. This, this, this spirit of Antichrist is part of this worldly system that we talked about last week. That's opposed to God, headed by Satan. 
So, verse 18 identifies very clearly the times we're in. And we'll deal with the end of verse 18. I'm actually going to roll that over to the second section. So, we've looked at the times. I want to look at the signs. John writes at the end of verse 18, this is how we know it is the last hour. And then in verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. How do we know that it's the last hour? It's because many of these little junior antichrists have gone out into the world and there's a growing opposition to Jesus Christ. Jesus described these last days as like birthing pains. Well, if you know anything about birthing pains, they get stronger, more intense, more frequent as you get closer to the event. So this opposition to Christ becoming stronger, more frequent, more of these little junior antichrists going out in the world and leading people in opposition to Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus himself said in Matthew 24. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the wickedness, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Listen to what Paul says about it. In 2 Timothy 3, he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And then he gives this description. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Does that sound like today? <laughs> that sounds like an exact description of the time, the hour we're living in right now. Is this kind of thing happening with greater intensity and greater frequency? Absolutely. So how this is how we know that it is the last hour. It's the presence of many antichrists leading the world in opposition to Jesus Christ. And it's characterized by an increasingly rapid moral decay in the world. And it will lead up to what Warren Wiersbe called him the satanic superman. <laughs> I like that. The satanic superman, the antichrist, the man of perdition, the lawless one, the beast. It seems like we're marching in this direction. And here's the thing. We're not going to stop it. We're not going to stop it. No matter who we vote for, what political party controls the White House or Congress, no matter what the United Nations and the European Union does, we are not going to stop this conclusion. History is marching in this direction. We're just not going to stop it. God's already told us it's going to happen. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter who you vote for or what causes you get involved in. It does. 
Those things matter. But they're not going to change the outcome. They're not going to stop the march of history toward this pre-really prophesied conclusion. But they can have an impact on the kingdom of God through the people we reach as the world moves in that direction. So these things do matter. We can have an impact on the lives of people. But we're not going to stop the predetermined end. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see these things happening all around us. We should go, Scripture's true. It's happening. There's storm clouds moving in. We see them. Some people act like they're going to somehow save God from this tragic end. Like we the church are going to step in and we're going to keep this from happening. Come on. We're not. But God is going to spare the church from going through the time of wrath. And that's something to rejoice in. See, if all the world sees in you and me as believers, if all they see is distress and despair, why would they want to listen to our so-called good news? Oh, I've been on the TV and I can't believe what's happening. I'm so upset. I'm so depressed. I'm so worried. I got all this anxiety. Want to hear the good news? No, I don't. You keep it to yourself, believer. Here's the cool thing. Being prepared does not mean boarding up and shepherding and sheltering in place. It doesn't mean boarding up and sheltering in place. It means having a ticket out of here before the storm gets here. Amen? So verse 19 continues. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now what's interesting is that these antichrists at one time were numbered among the people of God. They went out from us. They were here in our midst, in our assembly. They were, they, we thought they were part of the church. They hung out with the church. They worshiped. They sung the songs. They fellowshiped with the church. They appeared to be believers. They participated in the prayers of the church. They served. But then they went out. They left. Now, this doesn't mean they left the local church and went to another church. It doesn't mean they left Riverside and went to mega church down the road. That's not what it's talking about. They left the church, capital C, the church, the body of believers. So we shouldn't think, yeah, okay, Bob and Sally, they left. They weren't really believers. They left Riverside. That's not what it means. It's saying many who oppose Christ, they begin in community with the church, but then they leave the assembly of believers altogether. Did you know that one of the evidences of salvation is a desire to be with the people of God? Let me read you 1 John 3.14. It's just a chapter ahead. It says, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. We love them. See, when people experience salvation, they have the same spirit of God living in them. They have a desire to be together and to fulfill the commands of God toward one another. All the one another's of scripture. To love and serve and correct and rebuke and teach and encourage one another. The early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
And Acts 2 also says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They couldn't wait to be together as a body. I'm not saying if you meet together as a church, you're saved. And if you don't, you're not. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that those who are in Christ should have a desire to gather together with the body of believers. I love it when someone is away for a health reason. They can't be here and they come back and they go, oh, it's so good to be back in the fellowship of other believers, to worship together, to hug each other, to pray together, to encourage, to love one another. I love that. That's what it should be. Now, after all, there's got to be something supernatural going on here for anybody to want to hang out with all of us, right? got to be the spirit of God and um, we know we know what we're like so there should be that desire and it says for if they had belonged to us they would have remained with us but their going showed that none of them belonged to us now I think a classic example of this is Judas think about it he sat at the Lord's feet he heard the teaching of Jesus he saw the miracles he was counted among the 12 he ate with Jesus and the others he joined him in prayers he acted just like the other disciples but then he went out from them and he betrayed the Lord he never was one of them Judas should serve as a warning that it's possible to come really close to Christ but never come to Christ it's absolutely possible You can hang out with his people, hear preaching and teaching, sing the songs, yet never come to Christ. And the reality is there are people in our fellowship who are here, but they haven't come to Christ. Now, one of the questions I hear probably more often than anything is a concern for maybe someone's child or someone else that maybe made a profession of faith at a young age. Maybe they were in Awana and they prayed the sinner's prayer. And like they memorize the verses and they appear to be growing in their faith and now they're no longer walking with the Lord. Are they actually saved? And it's a really tough question. And we can't know for sure because we can't see the heart. We can only see the outside. We can see some evidences of what's in the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What are they saying? Can show you a little bit about the heart. But God sees the heart. He knows. But, one of the clearest tests of salvation that the Bible points to again and again is endurance. Endurance. Listen to these verses. Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 2, by this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. 2 John 9, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. This is God's word. It's pretty clear. Endurance is a clear test of salvation. Consider this. This one fascinates me. Jesus said, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Why a gate and a road? Why not just a gate? You go through the gate in a moment. I'm in. 
But on the other side of the gate, there's a road. And that road leads to salvation. And you got to stay on that road. This, that's that's a, a pretty deep thought. Now, two things I want to be really, really clear on. Don't misunderstand me. First, salvation happens in a moment. Not over the course of your life. But in that moment, God sees not only our heart, but he also sees the road we'll follow in the years to come. He sees our whole journey before it even begins. And I would say that journey that he sees is an indication of our heart. So he sees and he knows in that moment. Salvation happens in a moment, but he sees that whole journey. Secondly, I do totally believe that the Bible teaches the eternal security of all believers. Once saved, always saved. But here's a question, in whose eyes? Once saved in man's eyes, always saved? Or once saved in God's eyes? See, the fact is, there's people that in our eyes look saved. God sees the heart. He goes, look, people aren't saved. He's going to go out from you. He was never of you. He was close, but he never came to me. So, that's one of the points I think of this verse. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But the going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, implicit in this verse, I think, is this. If you want to resist the spirit of Antichrist that goes out from the church, then remain in fellowship with the church. Don't go out from us. Don't wander off. Continue to be fed by the teaching of the word, by fellowship, by the breaking of bread, and by prayer. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't go out from us. Again, I'm not saying that continuing to go to church saves you. But I'm saying that continuing to go to church is a characteristic of those who are saved. And it also can bring assurance of your salvation. Scripture says that. I'm kind of glad that false Christians will go out from us. It's a good thing. Because one of the signs of a healthy church, like a healthy body, is that it can purge itself of toxins. If we're a healthy church and we teach the word of God faithfully, then compromising Christians and false Christians will not be comfortable sticking around and putting down roots. We've seen this happen. They'll either come to genuine faith in Christ or they'll go out from us. And I find that comforting. They get winnowed out. We had a young man attend our fellowship not that long ago. He came for about a month he, with real apparent sincerity. And he raised his hand in response to a gospel invitation. And he got involved in some projects around the church. But in short order, he began testing the waters. When we would not embrace homosexuality and, and allow him to come to church dressed in drag, he went out from us. Now, was he a compromising Christian or was he a false Christian? The Lord only knows. He was one of those. But he would not put down roots in a healthy church that teaches the word of God. We weren't going to change our teaching. We loved him. We embraced him. We welcomed him. We wanted him to hear the word of God and to grow. But if that meant coming dressed up as a woman, we were not going to allow him to be a distraction to worship. And so 
The fact is, he came for weeks as a man. He was capable of doing it. But he was testing the water, and sadly, that man went out from us. But it's probably a good thing. A healthy church purges the toxin from among them. So, we're in the last minutes. I don't mean on the eternal timeline, in the message. <laughs> I'm out of time. We're in the last minutes. It's a promise. And we need to wrap it up. I want to give us some points to just kind of reflect on as we do. In way of summary. Oh, there's one I didn't put up first. Just as a summary. God gives us a preparedness manual in the Bible. And it's for our warning and it's for our instruction. And he wants us to be absolutely certain of what lies ahead. He doesn't want us to be surprised or fooled. Next, time had a beginning and it'll certainly have an end. And we are in what John calls the last hours. The spirit of Antichrist, he's already seen in those who deny Christ. It's all over the world. It's part of the worldly system. And it's leading up to the revealing of the Antichrist. How do we know it's the last hour? This is how we know. By a growing and intensifying opposition to Jesus Christ. And we see that. Don't be. I mean it's sad in one sense. But it's going to happen. Let the Lord be your joy. Let it give us this passion for reaching out to the world. Let it just motivate our evangelism. But don't be sour about it. One evidence of a true Christian is a desire to be with the people of God and to fulfill the purpose that God has for us in being together. Exercising all the one another's of Scripture. I said before, God doesn't save us into isolation. He saves us into a community of believers. One of the clearest tests of Scripture is, of salvation rather, is endurance. It's endurance. We need to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, Paul said. If you want to resist the spirit of Antichrist, remain in fellowship with the local church. Don't go out from us. You're in danger. The enemy wants to isolate you and surround you and overwhelm you. And then the best news of all, being prepared doesn't mean sheltering in place and boarding up. Spread this good news. God promises to spare his church from the time of wrath. Being prepared means having a ticket out of here before the storm gets here. Praise the Lord. Now Dan will have many more things to think about and apply in the Encore Guide. Coming out probably tomorrow if he recovers from the fusion trip. Might be Tuesday. The Encore and Encore Kids is a study guide that will lead us in deeper exploration of these things and, and application of them. If you're not signed up, shoot an email to Dan or to the church office and they'll put you on the list. It'll just be uh, emailed to you as a PDF every week. All right, with that, we've reached the end. <laughs> Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, apart from your word, and your work, we are doomed to destruction. There would be nothing we could do to avoid the coming judgment. And that judgment would last for all eternity. But God, one of the best phrases in scripture, but God loved us 
and he came down into this world of ours. And he took our place. He took our sin. He took our punishment upon the cross so that we might have his righteousness, so that we might have the reward, the inheritance that's rightfully his. He shares it with us. God, what great news. Lord, I pray that as we see these things happen around us, that we wouldn't be sour, Lord, but that we would have the joy of Christ, that we're getting out of here, that this is not the end, but that we would have a heart that longs for the loss, that doesn't want to see them go through the wrath of God. Lord, that it would stir up within us a fire of evangelism for the world around us, God, so that your church, your kingdom, might expand, God, and so that you would be glorified. God, we want this above all else. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.